as rats and pigeons, which have often been identified as uh, transmitters of uh, diseases from, uh, from animals to humans. So we have the human-animal interaction. Apart from that, the city uh, uh, um, brings with it a whole host of hygienic difficulties that do not exist in this way uh, in the countryside. Uh, hygienic difficulties are connected to population density, but of course also to the density of construction, which can mean that there is not enough sunshine, there is not enough air uh, in, the, in, the, in the dwellings of urban inhabitants, and also, of course, waste disposal, sewage, etc., etc. In sum, then, if we consider all of these factors together, it's clear to see that the city is a wonderful petri dish for new diseases to germinate and to come into being. If cities are as dangerous as you claim, why do we live in them in the first place? Could you give us a short historical overview of the origins of the city, especially the transition from nomadism to urbanism? How did the city come about? Well, yeah, I mean, this is a good question. Uh, why do we live in them in the first place if they're so dangerous, right? Generally, if we look at human history and uh, at ourselves today, we can see that human cultures have been very, very proud of the city, right? I mean, um, uh, generally, uh, uh, we, we, we uh, I mean, even the fact, the word that we use to describe our cultural achievements, civilization, right, is derived from civitas, which is the Latin word for city or citizenship. Right. I mean, um, if, we, if we're going to look back at the origin of cities, as you suggested, we need to start with agriculture because cities are not possible without agriculture, right? And the move from foraging, foraging societies to agrarian societies is generally viewed in human history as a great leap forward, right? Maybe even the defining leap forward in the creation of civilization, right? Well, agriculture, of course, uh, is so important because it necessitates a sedentary lifestyle. I mean, agriculture and sedentarism are not really separable uh, from each other. But agriculture, through, by uh, necessitating the sedentary lifestyle, it also invites centralized structures of organization and administration, right? It enables, for the first time in history, that some members of the human race do not devote themselves entirely to food procurement and then they can deal with other kinds of things. These people become the first artisans in, wor in world history. They become the first specialized non-food skilled workers in history, but also, of course, what they become are the first professional soldiers in history, the first rulers in history, and the first priests in history. Right. I mean, normally we we regard the shift from from city from from uh, from uh, nomadism or foraging to city lifestyle as a sort of natural, voluntary, evolutionary shift in human lifestyles. Right. After all, I mean, who wouldn't prefer city life to a lifestyle of hunting and gathering, where every day you're sort of roaming around and trying to find enough to eat and stuff like that. Right. But. As a matter of fact, we can actually safely assume that many people who lived in the first cities were more or less coerced to do so. They didn't necessarily come there of their own free will, but they were brought there by power holders in whose interest it was to gather populations and talents in locations of central administration, right? I mean, there are some very, very interesting articles that you can read on this topic. I mean, some classic articles like Marshall Salins writes on the original affluent society outlining how um, 
hunter-gatherer societies were in many ways actually, uh, in terms of lifestyle, superior to, to sedentary societies. And another article that I love to point out to, uh, to people is a, a classic article by Charles Tilly called um, War Making and State Making as Organized Crime, where really basically he equates the state city make state making and uh, by way of that city making uh, organisms political organisms as form as forms of mafia right anyway so um, power holders bring people together in cities because it's in their interest to do so right and in that sense also cities stand at the beginning as a matter of fact of social injustice and inequality between people who have the power and who don't i mean social injustice and inequality they're not impossible without cities obviously but cities are actually one of the most ancient and efficient tools mechanisms that humankind has created for the establishment and implementation of social injustice and social inequality so how would you tie the idea of social injustice and coercion back to the central question of the disease and the city? Yeah, well, okay. So uh, if we consider just cities uh, uh, in terms of uh, in terms of how, uh, how how healthy it was or how conducive it was to live in them for the general population, right? We've already said that in many cases uh, uh, cities were and still remain less healthy to live in than the countryside, right? Cities actually originally didn't offer any kind of health advantage to the people living in them. People living in cities had longer hours of work than people who were outside. They ate worse. They had a worse diet than people who were hunting and gathering. They lived shorter lives. Life expectancy in cities were, uh, was much higher than, uh, than, than in hunter-gathering. Uh, uh, lower, sorry, life expectancy was lower than in hunter-gathering societies. People died in larger numbers in cities, especially infant mortality rates were much higher in cities. The general health health of the population was much worse, and even factors of physical appearance, such as body height, were influenced. For instance, city dwellers tended to be shorter than your average foragers, right? So for most of human history, in fact, more people died in cities than were born in them. What does that mean? This means that city populations, if, they, if the city was to survive, if the city was to not perish, the population needed to be constantly replenished uh, from the countryside. One side effect that we might actually mention here is uh, uh, the effect on urbanization on uh, gender segregation and yeah. gender inequality. Because like, you know, in hunter-gatherer societies, uh, women uh, tended to look after one child at a time for pragmatic reasons related to mobility. And this meant that women could actually... Uh, devote significant time outside of child rearing to other activities in the community. Whereas uh, when we go, when we come to cities and we look at the high infant mortality in cities, this infant mortality means that women had to have multiple children in rapid succession, it, just in order for a couple of those children to survive. And to do that and to, to rear these children, they needed to refrain from non-domestic activities. And as a result, they became sidelined in the public sphere, in the sphere of vocational sort of development of the city, right? But if we come back to the question of negative population growth, right, um, it's possible to see cities as a sort of death trap, right, as a population black hole into which you needed to continuously feed more and more people just to fill the belly of the beast, right? People were aware of this, like people coming to the city knew this, but they came because they were forced to, either by direct coercion or by some kind of economic necessity, 
right? Today, I mean, this, the, this situation continues today, right? Consider the tens of millions of migrant workers who are in constant movement between city and countryside and between different cities all around the world. I mean, we're, we can talk about the migration from South America, Central America to the U.S., but also very markedly in countries such as China and India. From India, we recently heard uh, uh, reports that um, tens of thousands of migrant workers in cities such as New Delhi, uh, in face of the lockdown and uh, faced with the inability to make any more money, are trying to find ways to get back to their hometowns. And often they have to walk because uh, public transport has been, has been uh, cancelled, has been shut down. Right? So we see that today. Um, the, 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 the position, the, 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 this attribute of cities as a population death trap only really changed in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I mean, for the vast majority of human history, this continued to be the case. It changed thanks to modern medical theories, such as germ theory, which was uh, uh, developed by Louis Pasteur in uh, 1881, uh, or medicines such as, such as penicillin, improved public services such as modern sewer systems. These were the things that finally uh, helped us bring the, the, the incredible death toll of living in the city uh, uh, under control. So, so, so following that, the development of diseases in the city opens up another question that is currently being hotly discussed, uh, at least in some circles. Diseases as a form of biological warfare. Would you like to comment on that? Well, yeah. I mean, this is a this is a this is a question that has been taken up uh, in 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 the literature, right? Uh, most famously by Jared Diamond in his book Guns, Germs, and Steel, where guns, germs, and steel. Well, germs is one of the trifecta of 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 of, uh, of things that uh, that the European colonizers needed in order to take over the entire world, right? So, so to sort of brief, to briefly recap that argument, right? Um, uh, the production of new diseases in cities, right? It decimates city populations, but at the same time it created some advantages, albeit rather ghastly. Right? The biggest of these advantages was, as you already said, biological warfare. Cities uh, produced, well, societies and cities, often without, I mean often, uh, obviously without really wanting to, unwittingly, they produced powerful super germs. Uh, 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 that 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 uh, that uh, uh, were terrible for these populations, but at the same time, these germs produced the herd immunity that we hear so much about these days. Right to today, people sneer at this uh, at this at this at this at this uh, notion. They say, like you know, are we going to sacrifice a part of our population just in order to produce herd immunity against a disease? But this is exactly what used to routinely happen when new diseases uh, germinated in cities. So this herd immunity, uh, um, uh, after a while, uh, made uh, uh, urban populations more resilient to these diseases. And who wasn't resilient to these diseases? Obviously people who didn't belong uh, to these societies, right? So when these societies or their political extensions, such as armies or traders or something like that, came face to face with other rival societies, these germs could be used to horrific advantage, right? Um, very quickly, societies, in fact, or politicians or leaders, rulers, understood the advantages of this kind of germ warfare. The most notorious example maybe in history is that of the European colonization of the American continents that Diamond talks so much about, right? Large percentages of local populations in the Americas uh, were decimated by imported diseases, 
uh, that were brought by the Europeans without these Europeans even needing to engage these populations on the battlefield, right? So it means European cities had served, albeit unconsciously, as labs for the production of germs that the Europeans then went on to use as formidable weapons in their conquest of the world, right? So today, you know, uh, uh, when we hear something like a U.S. official or a Chinese official saying something about, like, accusing the other side of having intentionally produced or at least intentionally disseminated uh, uh, the coronavirus as a biological weapon, this is um, something that we're dismissive of generally. But... There is, in fact, a long historical precedent for such utilization of disease. And as a result, many people are liable to take such claims quite seriously, even today. And if they do, right, I mean, imagine it like this, right? Uh, I hear that, you know, the U.S. Or, or China or something like that, they might have introduced this on purpose, right? They, they might have used it as a means of biological warfare. If I buy that and I adjust my attitude and behavior accordingly... After a while, it won't even matter whether the coronavirus was originally a bioweapon or not, because we will believe it was, and we will act accordingly, remember the, invasion, the U.S. invasion of Iraq based on the assumption that there were weapons of mass destruction. After the invasion happened, it was like, oops, you know, there were no WMDs in Iraq after all, but it didn't matter because the invasion had already happened. So we need to be really, really careful, not just about the claims, but also about the possible political consequences of such claims. So, um, although you see cities as, as, as death traps, cities are also known as being the center of education and science, especially medicine. You mentioned uh, penicillin. Uh, incidentally, Pitt faculty member Christoph Van Houten recently conducted a wonderful interview with David Kelly on, on Ivan Illich and medical professionalism for Pitt Voices. Uh, it seems that the city creates the paradox where it is the curse and the cure at the same time. In other words, it's, it originates and provides medical solutions to diseases. Would you agree? Well, yeah. I mean, I've painted a very, very negative picture of city life in this interview because I focus on the connection between the disease and the city, right? I mean, but of course, there are many positive, incredible things about the city, right? I myself am a natural-born city dweller. I mean, listening to this, people might think of me maybe like living in some kind of forest hut and like living off the land, right? But as a matter of fact, I, I have spent many, many years of my life, the formative years of my life, in big cities, multi-million cities, including Istanbul, Hamburg, New York City, San Francisco, and Paris. As a matter of fact, I remember being a, being a graduate student in, in the USA, living on a small, uh, uh, sort of uh, beautiful kind of suburban campus close to New York City. And I would go to New York City on the weekends and go to Bryant Park and just listen to the sound of the cars whizzing around and just like relax to that sound. That's like the sound of home to me. Right? So, so, I mean, I, I, I come from, I, I present a skeptical point of view, but as somebody, as a lover of the city, as a matter of fact. But so, um, uh, as you said, you know, the cure does lie in the curse in a way, or rather the cure and the curse are inseparable in the, in the, case, of, uh, in the case of cities. I mean, the, the curse of cities uh, from a disease point of view is, is that they bring people together. But of course, like bringing people together is the very reason that cities exist in the first place, right? I mean, people of various backgrounds, people of various ages, of professions, being together enables creativity and productivity, and not just in terms of the economy, but also uh, science, technology, and 
I mean, for me personally, most importantly, arts and culture, <laughs> right? Um, uh, it has been suggested uh, that we can actually view the cities, view cities as the first computers ever, because the more people you bring together, the more you enhance their processing power by connecting them with each other, right? Big brains consisting of many little brains uh, produce more interesting things than each sort of little brain in its own isolation, right? And uh, the processing power expresses itself, as I said, in technological development, and art, culture, of course, uh, things like philosophy. In that sense, it's actually quite right, of course, that the word civilization should derive from the Latin word for city, because without cities, you wouldn't have anything that we today recognize as a, a work of uh, a civilization, right? And uh, it should also be, uh, I should also point out that, like, you know, the bringing together of people, I, 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 I characterized it as coercive and often exploitative. But uh, uh, our friend and colleague whom you just mentioned, Christoph van Houten, when I, when I was running the ideas for this interview by him, he actually reminded me that once people are together in the cities, they also produce results that are unpredictable to the rulers. For instance, revolutions. Right? <laughs> And talking about the city, you have mostly referred uh, to the pre-modern world. Would you care to comment on the current situation? Are cities in better shape now than they were before when it comes to their relationship with disease, for instance? Well, you know, advances in modern medicine, of course, hygiene and so on, have reduced the tremendous bleeding of lives uh, that characterize the pre-modern cities, right? I mean, cities are not death traps in the same sense, and many cities are not death traps in the same sense that they used to be. Still, in many ways, modern cities are just as bad or even worse than their pre-modern counterparts, right? Um, in terms of population density and environmental degradation in cities, um, many of us today live in urban uh, agglomerations in which, into which even the most hardened pre-modern urbanized urbanites wouldn't have dared to set foot, right? They would have been shocked. They would have been aghast to see the monstrous size of, the, of, uh, of, uh, of modern cities. Um, also, uh, cities continue to produce and physically manifest social and economic inequality in the form of geographic distribution. Meaning that, like, you know, in a city you have neighborhoods where sort of the, the wealthy live very clearly segregated from, 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 from neighborhoods uh, of disadvantaged uh, population uh, groups. Around the world, we can see this from Brazil to the Bronx, that uh, the geographic distribution of urban inequality, right, is creating ghettos of disadvantage in which escape from disease becomes virtually impossible, right? So, for instance, if you look at the percentage of deaths of African-American people, the, the disproportionate percentage of deaths for, uh, of African-American people in the United States uh, from the coronavirus, this is directly linked to this geographical segregation, to this ge geographical manifestation of, uh, of uh, wealth and uh, wealth inequality and social, uh, social inequality, right? Um, uh, next thing we should mention is the role of cities as fa facilitators of population circulation, not just in the city, but between the city and the countryside and globally between different cities and via these cities, uh, different uh, countrysides, right? Uh, modern means of transportation, such as cars, motorways, public transport, of course, airplanes, tourism, right? We are now living in a world uh, where um, this kind of circulation is so commonplace that a disease would not just affect the population of a city locally, but it would actually 
as we have seen with the coronavirus, not have problems spreading through this network of cities uh, uh, around the world. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, uh, well, you know, uh, uh, one thing that we should consider in this, in this context is that actually now we're living in a world where the majority of the world's population, of the global population, live in urban agglomerations, which is a first in, uh, in, 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 in global history. So cities are everywhere, everybody is in cities, cities are connected to each other, and this means that the physical distance and the unavailability of efficient transportation that characterized pre-modern cities and that made them somewhat resilient to diseases, you know, in their, in their separation from each other, simply doesn't exist anymore. An epidemic such as the coronavirus can tear through the entire world in a matter of months now, thanks to the urbanization of the world, right? So um, in these days, you know, we often hear people talking about the coronavirus and saying that there's a need for us to fundamentally rethink our priorities and lifestyles. But I doubt that most people include in that rethinking uh, the, the possibility of rethinking the very existence of cities themselves. So perhaps what you mean by uh, rethinking the very existence of cities themselves might lead us to a different way of organizing the city. You have probably noticed, as uh, have many Parisians who take their one-hour uh, daily walks around the city, Paris's air hasn't been this clean for years. And the noise level is probably equal to an urban town or somewhere like Venice where there is no car traffic. Would you like to comment on that? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, you know, I, uh, obviously, uh, uh, when I say rethinking the very existence of cities, I, I don't really believe that we could or should uh, get rid of the city altogether. But there is a need to deeply question what the city is and what the city should be, right? And I mean, people have started doing that. A lot of city cities have started reconsidering, municipalities have started reconsidering their, their priorities. I mean, of course, one of the first things that we think of is hygiene and environmental pollution, right? I mean, these are the usual suspects. Uh, uh, goals could be a reduction to a minimum of industrial production in cities and uh, a minimum of fossil fuel transport, right? Uh, uh, especially private cars, right? Uh, people think about physical health, but equally important is the effect of cities on, on mental on mental health, right? Mental psychological health. Sound pollution that you mentioned, urban density that reduces access to sunshine, you know, uh, the, the existence or the lack of parks and recreational facilities to balance people's uh, mental states when they live in the city. Cities are very tense. Cities are very, very uh, sort of stressful environments for the human uh, psyche, right? Um, the next thing to think about, I mean, if we, if we start to draw the circles a little bit broader, of course, is what I was mentioning earlier about the geographical distribution and reinforcement of inequality, right? There must be a way uh, to make sure that cities are not made up of pockets of like ghettos of advantaged and disadvantaged populations that uh, have this uh, unequal exposure or unequal protection in situations uh, in situations like this right um, the, the 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 question of uh, of uh, of inequality uh, brings us directly to the question of migration right i mean when we when we talk about migration to cities um, we shouldn't just i mean you know right now what people are doing is okay we're stopping migration you know nobody's going to come here anymore and 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 so we're going to sort of this kind of uh, sort of knee jerk 
a, a reaction to, to what's going on right now. But it's not just about forbidding labor migrants from coming to the city because often these people have no ch economic choice, right? I mean, today uh, um, in a place like Bangladesh, for instance, there are, there are um, uh, demonstrations on the streets. People want to go back to work in factories. People don't want to want, want to be in lockdown. And the reason for that is they're saying, well, you know, basically, if I catch the coronavirus, maybe I will die, right? But if I can't work in a factory, and if I can't earn enough money to buy food, then I'll definitely die. So, right, people are faced with this uh, stark choice, right? So, so what is really needed, rather than blocking people from access to these, uh, to these uh, labor opportunities that the city provides, really the idea is to create economic and labor incentives for populations so they do not feel forced to migrate in the first place, right? In, in reference to this, I, I just want to mention um, a, a kind of a rather ancient a saying in this regard that we find in the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu, the Chinese sage, where in chapter 80, uh, he says, and I paraphrase him, if a country is governed wisely, even though the next country is so close, you can hear its roosters crowing and its dogs barking, you are content to die of old age in your own place without ever having traveled to the next to the next uh, uh, sort of settlement, right? Of course, this is a caricaturized uh, version. This is a caricature of what I'm talking about, but it points to important principles of self-sufficiency and resilience, enabling people to live decent uh, 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 lives with integrity where they were born and where they were brought up, right? Um, and this, of course, has not just something to do with the, uh, uh, with the, with the pr provision of these uh, uh, labor uh, possibilities or economic possibilities, but also something with city size itself, right? Uh, medieval European urbanism, I mean, Lewis Mumford talks about this in his, uh, in his, in his classic work, uh, uh, The City in History, right? Lewis Mumford says that in, in, in medieval European cities, right, you know, um, of course, they were not ideal in terms of health or hygiene, but um, medieval European urbanism consisted actually of a dense network of towns. But each of these towns was at most a couple of 10,000 inhabitants, right? And such human scale social agglomerations made it much easier to check the circulation of diseases, but also had other advantages, such as the localized delivery of services such as healthcare, right? So imagine you've got a, like a little town with a couple of 10,000 people, and you've got a couple of hospitals there, a couple of uh, medical dispensaries, and so on and so forth. This, of course, uh, enables a much more efficient delivery of healthcare services than a city of, uh, you know, 10 million people where everybody has to go to these centralized mega hospitals using centralized means of transport, such as, uh, such as metros, and so on and so forth, right? I mean, and we can can see that we don't need to look to the Middle Ages to see that we can see that today, for instance, in Germany. Right today, we hear a lot about how Germany is uh, sort of offering an exemplary response to the coronavirus pandemic. But uh, among the reasons for Germany's success, one that is not mentioned so often is the fact that Germany still largely ret retains its medieval model of urban agglomeration, with a mere three cities that exist that, that exceed one million inhabitants and the rest of the population scattered in smaller urban agglomerations, right? And uh, uh, that is surely something worth thinking about in terms of resilience, in terms of, in terms of, uh, 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 in terms of empowering the local and not really uh, putting all our eggs in the basket of urban centralization.
Oh, thank you, David, for these timely considerations regarding our urban lifestyles and how they connect to burning topics such as the coronavirus pandemic. This brings us to the end of another episode of Picked Voices. Thank you all for tuning in, and we hope to welcome you to another one of our podcasts soon. Of course, our biggest hope remains to come face-to-face with you again as soon as possible. Until that can happen, stay healthy and safe.